please open up to James chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall, be, um, that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we stumble in many things. If, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set, it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please be seated. Good morning. Will you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father, with your word open before us this day, I ask that you would do a great work here this morning. Your word is truth. Your word is eternal. It stands firm in the heaven. Your word serves as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You have given to us your word. 
Father, I pray this morning we would approach the reading and studying of your word together as the word of God. That we would hear it as the word of God. Father, I pray that we would always come before your word with a sense of fear, a sense of trembling, a sense of awe, a sense of gratitude. You have not only given to us your son, your only son, but you have given to us and revealed to us your holy word by which we're to live. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us from your word of truth this morning. Not to fill our minds with more information. Father, I pray ultimately that you would grant to us and help us to see this wisdom from above. How it is to be lived out. How it is to be applied in this lifetime. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Kyle Eidelman in his book, Gods at War, speaks about Joshua, mighty Joshua. You remember Joshua, don't you? In the book of Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, in chapter 23, Joshua gathers all of the people together, calls for all of Israel, all of their elders, the heads, the judges, officers. And he says, I am old and advanced in age. Joshua has come to understand that he is about to leave this earth. But before he leaves, he wants to make sure that the people understand some things. And so he gathers them all together. And if you keep reading in Joshua 23, one of the themes that you see there is that he's holding up before the people who this God is. This God of Israel. He's a great God. He's a mighty God. Verse 14. Chapter 23 of Joshua. He says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. I just wrote down my Bible. Not one word. Not one word. Joshua, he's about ready to die. And he says, listen. This God of Israel, this God over all, not one word that he has spoken to you has failed to come to pass. Chapter 24. With them still gathered together. With this, whether this was a separate occasion shortly after chapter 23 or a continuation, proximity no doubt was close. He calls all the people again together and he's talking about the wonderful things that God has done, reminding them of who this God is, 
how he has worked. And then he gets to verse 14. Now, therefore, in light of who this God is, in light of how you've seen him work, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity or without hypocrisy, perhaps. And in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Many of you probably have plaques or little wall murals that have Joshua 24, 15 on it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is where it comes from. This is the context of that verse. Joshua makes very clear as he's about to go the way of the earth, who it is he and his family is going to be serving. Calls them to choose this day who you're going to serve. The people said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Verse 18, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. That's the the voice of the people. We'll serve the Lord for he is our God. Joshua doesn't say, okay, great. Joshua says, verse 19, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. In other words, Joshua's saying, you're saying yes to God, to serving God, but I want to let you know something. Because of the nature of who this God is, he's a holy God, he's a jealous God, he's not going to put up with you saying yes to him and serving all these other gods still. That's the point Joshua's making. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua once again, no, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, once again, we are witnesses. Yes, Joshua. Yes, Joshua. We're witnesses. Now, therefore, he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you. Put them away. The ones that are among you right now, put them away. You are a witness. You're going to serve the Lord. Put them away right now. And incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord our God we will serve. Again, once again, we'll serve him. His voice, we're going to obey. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Look at 26. He wrote these words in the book of the law. And he took a large stone. Thank you for the large stone. I thought it appropriate to have a large stone. He set it up under the oak. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you. Lest you deny your God. Lest you deny your God. You see, looking at the stone would remind them 
of the covenant that they made. To say yes to serving the Lord. To say yes, not only to serving the Lord, but forsaking all other gods. See, the problem, church, today is not necessarily that people aren't proclaiming or professing to follow Jesus. It's they they haven't been willing to get rid of, to unhook, unlatch the things that they have been living all their lives for. We could call them gods of our own making today. When he says, follow the Lord, the implication is we follow the Lord and unhook from all previous gods. It's not saying yes to Jesus and bringing them all along with you. Do you see the difference? You know, I read Joshua 23 and 24 and started asking some questions. How did Joshua arrive at such a declaration? But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. How did the people arrive at the declaration? We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey his voice. And it got me thinking, by what means... Does one choose today whether to serve the gods of their fathers, the gods of their past, Egypt, the gods of the culture around them, the gods of the Amorites, or to actually choose to serve the Lord God as we see him here in the word? By what means? How does one go about doing that? You see, choosing doesn't happen by accident, does it? Choosing to serve one of those gods doesn't happen by accident. It involves application of wisdom. There's some wisdom that goes into that. Now, James chapter 3 is going to talk about some wisdom. Two kinds of wisdom, in fact. One leads to choosing gods of the world, gods of the flesh, gods of the evil one. Leads to death. The other manifests itself in good conduct or works as James has been speaking of here. It manifests itself in good conduct. It manifests itself in gospel truth. And it manifests itself in fruit of righteousness. I believe the text bears that out. I didn't make those up. Choose this day... Whom you will serve. And how you arrive at choosing this day whom you will serve is going to largely be impacted by the wisdom that you display in this life. See, there are plenty of gods competing for your allegiance today. Did you know that? 
There are a lot of gods competing for your allegiance today. There are a lot of gods competing, let's be more specific, competing for the allegiance of those here in hope in Christ. Gods of entitlement. Where you walk around feeling like someone owes you something, like someone wronged you. You're entitled to this. That's entitlement. I'm entitled to this because I'm... We serve a God of pleasure. God of pleasure. If it's not fun, I don't want any part of it. You're serving a God of pleasure. Because it's got to be fun. God of achievement. God of perfection. Everything has to be just the right way. Everything has to be exactly how I want it to be. Which is closely aligned with a God of control. We like to control things. We want to control things. In fact, we don't like to give up any control. God of wealth. God of tradition. We've always done things this way. God of food. Got to eat just the right food. Got a family. That's a big one here, isn't it? God of independence. Doing it my way. God of education. God of truth. Isn't it interesting that there's question and there's debate, even in the circle of those who profess to be Christians, there is debate upon what is truth. We're still asking that question Pilate asked some thousands of years ago. What is truth? Let me give you the short answer. His word is truth. His word. That's the truth. But yet we wrestle with it. We hold up all these other things that we think are truth. God of lust. Yes, in the church. God of lust. Yes. God of entertainment. Some of these are perhaps hard to hear. You know, there's a hymn that we sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have Thine Own Way. And I, and I, I don't know, the, the, one of the stanzas, Hold over my being, absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit, till all shall see Christ only always living in me. And, and I don't know if I got all the words to the, the same stanzas. I know there are words to the hymn. They may, I maybe mixed some stanzas, I don't know. The words are correct, I believe, at some point. I was thinking about that, that hymn and, and, you know, when you latch on to, to one or more of the gods that we mentioned, it, it's really, truly impossible to say, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. When, if he's the potter and you're the clay, and that's what the Bible says, 
Why is it that we tend to get so uneasy when God desires to complete us, shape us into the image of his son? Have thine own way, Lord. How can we sing, hold over my being absolute sway when, when you really have no intention of obeying his word of truth, but you instead are going to go your way? Are you truly interested in being filled with thy spirit long term on a day to day basis, Sunday through Saturday, 24 7, two feet in living for the Lord? Is there any desire that all might see only Christ in you? Is there any heightened awareness that all might see always Christ in you? Only and always. Sounds like choose this day whom you're going to serve. Choose, make a choice. You know, Joshua is kind to the people. Joshua gave them four options. It was a multiple choice that day. Are you going to serve your forefathers, the gods of your forefathers? Are you going to serve the gods of Egypt from your past? Are you going to serve the gods of the Amorites and the culture in which you now live? Or are you going to choose to serve the living God? You don't hear too many invitations given today, multiple choice perspective, do you? Joshua sets forth the importance of living for the Lord. Living for Christ. Christ only, always living in me. The text in James 3 offers two kinds of wisdom. And herein lies part of the challenge, church. There's two. If there were but one, if this wisdom, if there was just wisdom from above, it perhaps would make things a lot simpler. But there's not just wisdom from above. There's also, the Bible says, wisdom from below. And so, really, two questions need to be asked here. Will will you choose to pattern your life according to the wisdom from above? Will you choose to pattern your life according to the wisdom from below? How's your life going to be lived? The text is going to differentiate between the two. And then the text is going to show what happens. It's going to give results. Results when you operate according to the wisdom from above. Results when you operate from wisdom below. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You know, as a scattered church going through trials, it would be important to identify those wise and understanding among them. Who are they? What do they look like? Having just warned the church about becoming teachers in chapter 3, verse 1, James asks a pertinent question. Not only for the first century, but for the 21st century. You see, James is essentially asking, he's writing here, he's he's describing to the congregation, helping them to evaluate themselves, says one writer, and discern who the truly wise ones among them are. Who Listen, who both know what is right and practice it. Know what is right and they practice it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Does one's position make him wise? 
Do one's letters after his name make him wise? Does a popular name equate to a wise and understanding person? What then makes one wise and understanding? By the way, Deuteronomy chapter 1 speaks to this wise and understanding relating to leaders in Israel. A few chapters later in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 4, this wise and understanding is applied to the people. What we're talking about here, I believe, in James chapter 3 is perhaps, yes, tied to the teacher in light of some of the context that we've come across, but I do believe in large part connected to the church as a whole. Who is wise and understanding among you, church? What do you look for? On the contrary, what do you not look for when determining one who is wise? I think sometimes in the church today, there's a selection of a preacher, a teacher in the word, because the person is a dynamic speaker. The person is a polished speaker. The person can tell great stories. What makes one wise and understanding? I believe he shows us and gives us the answer. It says, let him show by good conduct. One who, in fact, that let him show, it's an imperative. So really, he must show. Let him show because he must show. He must show, this wise and understanding person. He must show by good conduct. He makes it evident that it is so. See, wisdom from above which is what James is addressing right here in verse 13. He'll come back more on 17 and 18. It's seen by what is shown. Does that make sense? Wisdom from above is seen by what's shown. Wisdom from above is shown by good conduct. Good conduct. You know, there was another scene this past week. I know there were a lot of things that happened this past week. In the world around us, there was one report that I heard of conduct that happened in a school, not here. But there was a certain young man whose conduct was very harmful to some 20 people at least that I heard. Real people were, were harmed and hurt and damaged because of this young man's conduct. His conduct displayed something. And you know, so, you know, if we think about what happened in the news, you may hear some other things that, that, that tie into one's conduct and, and the result of one's conduct. I see conduct happen. I see it all the time on the court when I'm refereeing one's conduct. And the results of one's conduct. When someone acts like a fool, the result is not good. But that's not just on the basketball court. That's, that's in life, isn't it? Good conduct, poor conduct, they lead to something. They show themselves to be something, do they not? They tell us much about the person, much about the heart. Tell me, church, have, have you recently, you, have you recently 
exhibited conduct that would call into question your allegiance to the King of Kings? Is your conduct representative of the Lord or the evil one? Your conduct. Is your conduct consistent throughout the entirety of a week or are you living a life of duplicity? You see, your conduct can be above reproach perhaps here on a Sunday. The question I'm asking is outside the walls here on Sunday, what does your conduct look like? What are you showing Monday through Saturday? Wisdom from above is shown by good conduct. In case you're wondering, defining the source of good conduct. God's word properly applied through God's wisdom by means of God's spirit. That'd be a good pattern for us to practice. Wisdom from above will always result in conduct pleasing to the Lord. What is it according to James that the wise and understanding person is to show by good conduct? He concluded chapter 2 with this thought of faith and works working together, right? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done. How? What characterizes one who is wise and understanding in God's economy? It's the meekness of wisdom or the humility of wisdom. The humility of wisdom, one writer says, would have been an odd expression in the first century Hellenistic world. Meekness was not a well-respected trait in much Greek thought. The New Testament writers, however, followed Jesus' teaching and understood meekness or humility to involve a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with our fellow man. Who is wise and understanding? Literally, says, let him show by good conduct his works in the meekness of wisdom. The term meekness, I believe, church, is not an accidental term. See, that's part of the contrast here when we look at the text. The meekness contrasting God's wisdom and the harshness to come with worldly wisdom. And I believe, as the writer says, that James and saying for people to be truly wise, they must exhibit this spirit of humility. The need, in fact, for humility is seen in a few verses later. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But we see in James 4, 6, that God resists the proud but gives grace to whom? The humble. We see in James 4, verse 10, the call to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, works carried out in the meekness of wisdom, they're contrasted in verse 14 and elaborated on in 15 and 16 here. James is going to color in some additional details of this wisdom from above when we get to 17 and 18. Verse 14 says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. 
But there's a contrast. What's being contrasted? The meekness just spoken of with this bitter envy, with this self-seeking. Where does bitter envy and self-seeking come from? In fact, we see bitter envy and self-seeking. Did you know that they're a part of that list in Galatians chapter 5? That list which gives us the works of the flesh which are evident. Able to be seen. They're evident. These are evident. Envy and self-seeking. Works of the flesh. So one who claims to exhibit wisdom and understanding, verse 13... Shows it by works characterized by good conduct. It's evident, right? Bitter envy and self-seeking are also evident. They're seen. And so one who operates selfishly is noticeably different than one who operates in the meekness of wisdom. They aren't close cousins. It's not hard to tell them apart. One who is operating in selfishness, self-seeking. One who is operating out of envy versus one who is operating in the meekness of wisdom. One is out for his own gain. The other is actually considering the interests of others. That was a scripture that was read this morning. One has his own good ideas and he's closed-minded to any input. The other is kindly affectionate toward the other with brotherly love and honor giving preference to the other. That would be the idea of Romans 12. One pursues his agenda no matter the cost, no matter who gets hurt in the process. No matter how it might affect someone else. And the other lays down his agenda and in humility esteems others better than himself. This selfish ambition was a word that was commonly used in settings of of, of rivalry and, and partisan politics. And so when you couple that word with this bitter envy, this image appears of people in angry competition... Or as one writer says, undermining one another and each fighting for their own rights, which is a far cry from the humility of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, the clause here could be uh, addressed toward the church who happens to have an ongoing problem with this. Do you ever find that when you're reading the letter, when James is addressing something in the letter, just like when Paul addresses something in the letter, when Jesus says something, that there is an issue already going on. There is a problem already happening, already occurring. And so James is writing. And one way to see this text in terms of the construction of it is to see that it has been happening. And James is saying, stop it. There is no place for bitter envy and self-seeking in the life of one following Jesus. You said yes to following and obeying the Lord. Serving the Lord. Don't bring all this other stuff with you. The construction could also suggest that you make no habitual action. Don't, Don't operate this way. Don't make it a habit going forward to operate this way. So where does the truth come into the picture? I mean, the imperative on the other end of the clause in verse 14. Do not boast in lie against the truth. 
the truth. John, James already in James 1.18. It says of his own will he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We became a new creation. I think of Romans 10. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. We, we've been brought forth by his word of truth. Even just a few verses later, well, in John's gospel, in fact, John 17, 17, the one we read earlier, Jesus is praying to the Father and says, sanctify them by your truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Faith is exercised by this word. Jesus prayed to the Father that his followers would be set apart by his truth and that his truth is the word. And in James 1, 21, a few verses from where we were just a moment ago, James says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive, how? With meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted, what? Word. Which is able to do what? Save your soul. You see, this verse is helpful for contrasting the bitter envy and self-seeking with Meekness. James says to lay aside all filthiness, the abundance and overflow of wickedness, and receive how? We receive it with meekness, with humility. What's he to receive? This implanted word, this word that's been preached, this word which is able to save. Unless the word of God is received with meekness and humility, it is not received. It must be received that way. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Self-seeking doesn't fit into that. Deny yourself. James 4, 6, we'll get to it. God resists the proud. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven you see harboring bitter envy and self-seeking is a recipe for disaster God's truth is available to us right here it's been given to us his word his truth are you going to align yourself under his truth or continue to walk contrary to his truth Or are you going to hold and profess to hold to his truth and at the same time carry around all these other gods with you? You need to choose truly whom we're going to serve. You see, the issue for many is not that you're ignorant of the truth. You know the truth but you don't care to apply the truth to your life. You want to carry out your own desires, and we already know where that leads us, right? James chapter 1. It's called sin. You've made a profession to follow Jesus, yet you have continued to follow sin. It's like Joshua talking to the people. You see, there were some people who really wanted to return to Egypt, didn't they? 
They really wanted to go back to those other gods. Not quite ready to unhatch, unlatch, and hook from those gods. Reminded me of 2 Chronicles 18 when, when Jehoshaphat and Ahab, remember when they aligned together? They came together, king of Israel and king of Judah. Jehoshaphat asked Ahab, they're getting ready to go into war with Ramoth Gilead, right? And he says, hey, um, and praise the Lord, Jehoshaphat thought of this because Ahab didn't. Ahab wouldn't have. Jehoshaphat says, hey, I think it'd be great to inquire of the Lord before we go into battle. Ahab says, okay. So he inquires of the 400 prophets that he has. And he says, hey, guys, what do you think about this? Should we go into battle or not? And all with one voice, they say, yeah, I'll go into battle. The Lord has delivered you. Going to deliver you from these people. This is just be a good thing. Well, Jehoshaphat inquires further to see if there are any other men of God to ask. You remember this? Second Chronicles 18, verse 7. He asks, and listen to what Ahab says. He says, and you can almost guess how he says these words. There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. That's what he said. Because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. I hate him. And Jehoshaphat says, let the king not say such things. And so they inquire of this prophet, Micaiah. And sure enough, he prophesies in a way that King Ahab doesn't like. But you see, King Ahab, in general, was one of those kings, like that whole line of Israel, who were bad, wicked kings. He didn't much care for the prophet Micaiah because... He gave him the truth from God's word. A lot of people don't like to hear the truth from God's word. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, you aren't concerned a whole lot with God's truth. You'd rather not pick up the Bible to read it because you know it's going to direct you in a different path. Tell me, when you're confronted with the truth of God's word, do you tend to operate in the spirit of Ahab? I hate it because it's always bad news. Always tell me to do something I don't want to do. Or more in the line of the spirit of David. When David, remember when David was confronted by his sin? Remember what his words were? 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. How does James describe this wisdom in verse 14? In verse 15, he gives us three descriptors. Very important descriptors of this, this kind of wisdom in verse 14. That exhibits bitter envy, self-seeking. That boasts and lie against the truth. This wisdom, talking about the wisdom described in verse 14. This wisdom does not descend from above. That ought to be a cue. That ought to be a cue. As you're reading, you're thinking... Sin from above. Have I heard that before in this letter? Absolutely you have. Chapter 1, verse 17. You remember every good gift? Remember every perfect gift? Where does it come from, church? From above. This wisdom from verse 14, James says here, does not descend from above. 
So what is it? Where is it? It's earthly. It's sensual. It's demonic. How are those for descriptors of this kind of wisdom? Anybody want to sign up for that kind of wisdom? Earthly, sensual, demonic. Earthly, of the earth, of the world. One writer said that this is the kind of wisdom that shuts out God and limits its scope to things on this earth. Wisdom that's earthly is wisdom that operates from the world's perspective. You know, Paul writes about this in Philippians 3, 18 and 9. He said, you know, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. Colossians 3, verse 2 says, to set your mind on things above, not on things where? On the earth. I was reminded of that man in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Remember Mr. Worldly Wise Man? What a character. His name gives him away. That's who he was. Of the world. Of the earth. So this wisdom is earthly, it's also sensual, or maybe some of your translations say natural. And this is often contrasted with spiritual, this word in the scripture. So the significance of this natural wisdom is that it lacks the life of the spirit. Corinthians chapter 1, Corinthians 2, right? Corinthians 2 talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. What's the difference? Well, the Bible says, I believe, very clearly there in in chapter 2, it's talking about that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, can't discern those things of the Spirit because he's not a spiritual man. He cannot. He's not able to. This wisdom from below is not only earthly, but it's sensual. It's natural. It's unspiritual, to put it another way. Or you could contrast the natural with supernatural. There's an element here where there's the natural man operates without the spirit, does he not? The spiritual man operates with the spirit. Reminds me of Galatians 5. Are we walking in the spirit or are we walking in the flesh? If you are a natural man, you are all the time, every time, it's 24 hours in the flesh. You're a natural man. Corinthians 2.14 is that passage. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, right? The third descriptor here is demonic If you look at the previous verse where it says, do not boast and lie against the truth. He's already given us a characteristic of the evil one here. Because you see, bitter envy and self-seeking 
are of the devil. We need to remember that the devil is the father of lies. Boast and lie against the truth. That's characteristic of the devil. There is no truth in, in him. And so one writer says, you know, James here, he's exposing, he's exposing the congregation's faulty worldview, so to speak, here. As the, the complete antithesis of anything godly, it's earthbound, it's earthly, it's spiritually dead, natural, sensual, and demon instigated, demonic. And these three descriptors form the biblical source of the well-known English triad that we put forth on many occasions. The world, the flesh, the evil one. The world, the flesh, and the evil one. That's the characteristic of this kind of wisdom. Is this the wisdom, church, that you're going to choose to serve? Are you going to choose to serve operating in this kind of wisdom? The results in verse 16 of such wisdom. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Confusion, the word confusion, this is the third time it's been in the book of James. The first time it pops up in the book of James is chapter 1, verse 8. Where it's talking about this double-minded man, unstable. Okay? Unstable. It pops up in chapter 3, verse 8. No man can tame the tongue, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Unruly. It's uncontrollable. And then here in 3.16, that of confusion, that of disorder. And so, thinking about results, thinking about scenario played forward, played out. Here's where envy and self-seeking lead. Here's the picture they paint. It's confusion and every evil thing. It can happen among leadership in the church. It can happen among the body as a whole. So give me an example. What's it, what's it look like? What can happen? What do we mean by confusion? Every evil thing. Well, the results could be many Many different things, one of which could be divorce, those who are professing to be in Christ. Adultery? Embezzlement of funds. How many times have you heard stories? They're out there. People who profess to be in Christ, how about outbursts of wrath? How about looking at something on your computer when you know you shouldn't be looking at that something on your computer? You see, are you serving the Lord or not? Are you sending a confusing message to those around you? Professing Christians who use foul language. That's confusing. Professing Christians who get drunk. I'm not talking about drinking. I'm talking about getting drunk. Professing Christians who regularly, freely 
break traffic laws. And you might not think that's a big deal. It sends a confusing message if you're not real concerned about obeying the laws of the land. Professing Christians who cheat or steal and think nothing of it. Professing Christians who live no differently than the world. Professing Christians who rarely, if ever, pick up this word of truth. Confusion in every evil thing exists when we operate from the perspective of this wisdom below. Earthly, sensual, natural, demonic. That's what it leads to. This chaos, writers, it ruins both the credibility of the church and the eyes of the world and the ability of the church to minister effectively to its own congregation, to its own people. When we're fighting for power in Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold. When we operate with worldly values, seeking our own honor and status, we oftentimes just throw open the door for an invite to Satan to come and be a part of our gathering. Our actions operating this way no longer demonstrate our faith, but rather show our commitment. They show our allegiance to the things of the world. It's confusing. Praise the Lord, church, there's another option. The text gives it to us. The wisdom described in 14 through 16 is of the world, of the flesh, of the devil. Listen to this. This kind of wisdom described 14, 15, and 16, it always advertises, always advertises Better alternatives, easier approach, quicker results. Right? It always does. It's, it's almost like that, that, that marketing pitch, you know, for a limited time only. How many of you have you heard it? You've heard it. Limited time only. Why do they say that? To get you to do it now. So let's contrast it. There's a wisdom from above. Praise the Lord, wisdom from above is offered and provided and given. By the way, Proverbs chapter 2 talks about how the Lord God gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without Hypocrisy. Oh, I love that list. That's a good list. We ought to know that list. We ought to have that list. We ought to keep that list and remember that list. Because it's that list that's going to help us navigate in this life, choosing to serve the Lord God. And there's a couple different ways that we could probably approach these descriptors of this kind of wisdom that is from it. We could take each of the words and, and, and perhaps go through and give definition and understanding. And I, I thought, you know, I thought maybe it'd be helpful, uh, perhaps best to, to give some understanding of these words in verse 17 from the perspective of Christ himself. Can we not look at Christ and instead of just defining what the words are, let's look at the words in verse 17 and let's see how Christ himself put them into play. Can we do that? Because he did. Christ put them all into play. 
Christ embodied these things. This wisdom from above characterized our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says it's first of all pure. First, pure. There's a reason. First, pure. The word itself comes from the root word where we get hagios, which is holy. Holy and pure. In the original, those, are, those are in the same camp of words. This wisdom from above is first of all pure. Without spot. Without blemish. Unmixed with air. It's pure. It's from God. It's pure. You see, he, he gives nothing but good and perfect gifts, does he not? So how could this be anything but pure? That's what it is. This wisdom from above, it's pure. Pure. Think of pure as being the umbrella over which all the other remaining descriptors fall under. It's pure. Now he's going to give us the list underneath that. First, it's first. He makes a point to tell us first it's pure. We know from the Bible that Christ himself lived a life, took on the form of man on account of sin, was sent down here, God with us, Emmanuel. And while he was like you and me in, in the fact that he had flesh and blood, the Bible says, yet he was without sin. He was pure. He was holy. And that's, his life exhibited that very aspect. Pure, holy. He was always only about pure and holy. That was Christ. Then peaceable. Peaceable. And this church contrasts with the worldly wisdom filled with envy and self-seeking and wrath Wisdom from above is recognized by peace. Not quarreling. Not arguing. The proverb says any fool can continue a quarrel. Peace. Jesus says, my peace I leave to you. My peace I give. Not as the world gives. Do you see the difference? Different kind of peace. Christ is the prince of peace. Christ preached peace. To those who were near, those who were far away, he preached peace. He brought about peace. A reconciling work on the cross that brought peace to us. Amen. First pure, then peaceable. Gentle, considerate. Matthew 11 Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle. I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Church, we need to understand something. Gentle is not soft. Gentle is seen in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of his privileges. He was God. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. Church, I see nothing soft in that. Nothing at all. Gentleness. 
is a part of this wisdom from above. Willing to yield. Willing to yield. Obedience. Submitting to the will of the Father and not your own. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the the yield sign as we drive our vehicles. A yield. We give way. Accidents are caused sometimes because, not because they didn't see the sign. They're not willing to yield. They They just went. Willing to yield. Are you willing in your life to yield your will to God's will? Are you willing to yield your life to the truth of God's word and forsake going your own way? Willing to yield. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Christ was willing to yield. It was always about yielding to the Father. Did he not time and time again? Read John's gospel, please. I have come to do the will of my Father. I've come. The Father sent me to do his will. My food is to do the will of the Father. Jesus' whole life was embodied and captured in this willingness to yield, to obey The Father. You see, when confronted with choices in life, the wise person, the one who shows by his good conduct this wisdom from above, he will always take into consideration what God says, what God thinks on the matter. And his decision-making will always give way, will always yield To God's truth. That's exhibiting wisdom from above. The world might profess a better way. Might profess an easier route. Might might talk about a quicker fix. But the man who operates with wisdom from above is a man willing to yield to God's way. And sometimes God's way is wait. Slow down. Be patient. Full of mercy. Full of mercy. I'm reminded with Christ and how his mercy. Titus chapter 3. When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. When he appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Full has in mind Full to the brim. Filled up to the full. Filled to the full with mercy and what else? Good fruits. The person operating with wisdom from above is not casting judgment on everyone, but is extending mercy. He doesn't throw stones at people and leave them wounded and alone. He's merciful and compassionate. His life is characterized by good fruits as opposed to rotten fruits. And I believe James, in part, is writing here in James chapter 3, addressing some in the church, perhaps, who were rotten fruit people. Bitter envy and self-seeking, 
produce rotten fruits, church. Bitterness, contention, complaining spirit, pride. You'd be deemed to be full of evil and wickedness, not mercy and good fruits. A heart full of mercy and good fruits is a heart that has its gaze set on God's word of truth. Then there's without partiality. By the way, Christ in his life, was he not full of good fruits? Healing, teaching, preaching, miracles, all kinds of good fruits were evident in Christ's life. And we see without, without partiality. And we see in the life of Christ this magnified in a great way. Christ associated himself. He associated with the poor. He associated with the prostitutes. He associated with the sick, the diseased, the leper, the blind, the lame, the social outcasts, the ones on the perimeter of society. Jesus didn't show any favoritism to those people, did he? See, I'm putting, I'm putting some, some reality to wisdom from above. It's one thing to define the terms. It's another thing to see in an individual, in this case, Christ. He embodied all these things we're talking about. And it's this kind of living that's going to, and this, it's only this kind of living that is going to help us consistently live out and choose this day whom you're going to serve because people are watching and people get confused. This wisdom from above, modeled in the life of Christ, becomes very helpful. In fact, James has already talked about partiality, hasn't he? Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Chapter 2, verse 1. Evidently, that had been a problem. And then we see without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Genuine with everyone. Jesus wasn't double-minded. He wasn't double-tongued. Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. He spoke the truth even though it would cost him his life. Some of us are willing to lie to escape trouble. Jesus lived his life in such a way it was totally genuine. It was without hypocrisy. He knew it was going to cost him his life. Quite a list, isn't it? Quite a list. What are the results of this wisdom? Verse 18. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fruit of righteousness. That's the result. There's a fruit of righteousness. And you know, I was reminded here as he's talking about this fruit of righteousness in in Paul's letter in Romans. He speaks some words that I think are very helpful here. In Romans chapter 6, speaking in the context of one who is in Christ, our union with Christ. And beginning in verse 18, Paul says, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. That's how it used to be before you were in Christ, Paul says. 
So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness or unto sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Absolutely you were free. You lived as the world did. You lived in the flesh. You didn't live in the spirit. What fruit? Listen to 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Was there any fruit? If there was any fruit, it would be deemed rotten fruit, would it not? Before righteousness came. For the end of those things is death. We're getting closer to Romans 6.23, aren't we? The wages of sin is what? Death. Verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit. You have your fruit to holiness. In the end, everlasting life. Death and life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is the result of this wisdom from above. It's sown in peace. It's sown. There's a process here. There's a process. Fruit. Think about fruit. The whole idea of fruit, it it takes some time to develop fruit, to grow fruit. Does that mean we shouldn't pursue it? No. It not only takes time, but it's to be an ongoing. Fruit of righteousness ought to Represent who we are in Christ. We sow in peace. This fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Or for those who are peaceable. It's important that we understand this concept of peace. One writer describes this. It's it's helpful for us here to understand the ending point, the result here of this wisdom from above. This peace, this concept, this idea goes beyond a shallow avoidance of problems, right? Or uncomfortable issues. Neither will wisdom pursue peace at the expense of purity. Remember, first pure. It will not compromise with sin to maintain peace. But even when fighting against sin, it hungers for peace, yearning to heal all divisions by its wise counsel. And so in essence, peace is the ultimate goal of wisdom. And wisdom only reaches its fullest potential in the midst of peace. He says the righteous do not merely keep the peace, which sometimes means failing to confront problems that should be addressed. Rather, they make peace, which may mean, listen, it may mean, Temporarily disrupting a community. Oh, uh uh-oh. In order to deal with root problems so that genuine peace may ensue. Romans chapter 5 says, Having then been justified by Christ, we now have what? Peace with God. We can't have this peace that we're talking about unless we have been justified, unless we have been declared righteous, unless we are in Christ. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Church, we began with Joshua. And we're in there. If you will, turn. The end of Joshua 
is the death of Joshua. Remember all that was declared. We will obey. We will listen to his voice. We're going to serve him. If we flip into Judges chapter 2, I want to turn your attention. Verse 7 says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. All the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, servant of the Lord, died when he was 110. They buried him. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Is there a problem there? I think, I think most of my, my family, can, can I just, and you all have no idea what I'm doing, but that's okay. Can I just have my family come on up just for a moment? Okay? Don't worry, you don't have to say anything. Just, just, just come up here for a moment. Operating, operating with this wisdom from above. I want to, just in having my own family up here, I want to point out that there was another generation who came after Joshua who did not know the Lord, didn't know the work of the Lord. And I would want you all to know, and I'm speaking on behalf of mom as well, There's going to come a day when mom and dad aren't going to be here. And it's important, just as Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That you remember that stone as well. That stone of witness. That you don't live for the Lord only when dad and mom are around. But when dad and mom are gone that every single one of you live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Choose this day to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible here and what we talked about this morning, this wisdom from above is the recipe. This is how we live this life. This is how we choose to serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do this. We operate this way with the wisdom from above, church. dads and moms this is my family the Lord has blessed me with praise the Lord he's blessed you with a family perhaps it would be a great exercise sooner than later because what we don't want to have happen for the Lord's sake what we don't want to have happen is this other generation if you are in the other generation In other words, if you're not a dad or a mom, but if you're a son or a daughter in particular here in this body, raise your hand for just a moment. If you're one of the children, dad and mom's here. Nice and high, go ahead. Be proud to be a child of of your family. That's, That's a good thing. Okay, lots of hands. And I know a lot of you know a lot about some of the things in the Bible. Praise the Lord you do. Call this morning is in part to you, young people next generation 
This wisdom from above that we're talking about. Not just for dad and mom. Yes, dad and mom, we're to live it and we're to impress it upon our children. Absolutely. Walk it out. But children, do not let it be said like it was said in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. That there came another generation who did not know the Lord, did not know the works of the Lord. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Right now. Do not depend upon dad and mom for your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to heaven. No one gets to heaven riding, holding on the coattails of dad and mom. It doesn't work that way. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Who are you going to serve? And when you choose whom you're going to serve, it's going to come down to how you go about doing it. And the scripture today in James 3 gives us two kinds of wisdom. There's only two kinds of wisdom, church. Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. Wisdom from above leads to life. Wisdom from below leads to death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your perfect gifts, your good gifts. Father, I thank you for the families that you've given to us. Thank you for the reminders that you've given to us in your word to live this life with intentionality, to choose to serve the Lord. And as we choose to serve the Lord, we unhook ourselves from all these other gods that are clamoring for our attention. I pray that it would be said of our homes that we will serve the Lord. And I pray for this next generation that right now they too will serve the Lord. They will abandon all of these other things that the world's throwing at them. That they would desire to serve the Lord and operate with his wisdom from above. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your truth. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.